Welcome. Uh, Justin's my name. I'm the rector of the parish. I work with Paul and others, uh, both employed and lay, to see the gospel fill this city. And uh, we're glad you joined us. And we hope that what we have for you today is of some value, uh, maybe even profound value. We'll see how we go. This is the prayer that I'm uh, praying through the whole series uh, called Made to Work, a four-week series. So would you bow your heads for prayer? <clears throat> Father, we really do want to live and work to your praise and glory. So teach us then how to live, teach us how to love, teach us how to work. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing and make us more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's often said of original sin that it is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. In other words, you see it everywhere. You feel it everywhere. You know it in your experience. and You grieve it. Maybe as much at work as anywhere else. And you'd love something to be done about it. Today we're connecting the dots between the doctrine of sin in the Old and New Covenants, Jewish and Christian Scriptures, between the doctrine of sin and being realistic whenever you go to work or live life. And my text today is Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, because Adam ate fruit from the tree. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. We're going to need some resurrection hope. <laughs> the series before Lent is called Made to Work. Two weeks have been completed. And then there's this week and next week to go. But the series is an introduction to the whole year. We're spending the whole of 2019, hopefully, connecting the dots between what we learn on Sunday and what we do on Monday and Tuesday, etc. The theme then of Sundays in 2019 is Monday. I've asked you to correspond with me and I'm getting stacks of questions on email to address throughout the year. And we're working on ways to air those questions in the right forum and get them out and get the best people answering them. We started doing that a little bit on Rivendell. Why the series? And the answer is we want alignment between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work we do, between good theology and what we do midweek. Now, that's anything you do, by the way. I mean, there's different there's people employed, employers, self-employed, looking for work, retired. No matter where you are, where you exert your energy, we're all in different stages in life, with different energies, but we're all called to serve, money's only a part of it, we're all called to serve others in what we do in God's world. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, quoted by Paul in Colossians 3. Dorothy Sayers wrote a piece on work called Why Work during the Second World War. She said, what I urged was a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work. I love that phrase, thoroughgoing revolution. She meant, the argument was, work for the thing that you're doing rather than the dollars. 
She, she says, for the sake of doing well, a thing that is well worth doing, you're contributing to God's world. But what does a thoroughgoing revolution look like if you're in Christ, and especially with respect, thirdly, to sin? Three weeks ago, I tried to connect the dots between worship and work. It's the Lord Jesus you're serving. We're made to worship God, not work. But so many of us will be tempted to worship work. And we'll hurt and damage our own lives and maybe the lives of others when we get that order wrong. Two weeks ago, we tried to connect the dots between creation and work. The idea is because God goes to work, we work. Indeed, we are made to work. All those talks are online. Today, I want to present the problem and next week to propose a solution. So, you've got to come for two weeks. That we knew. Just joking. And we'll explore it in 2019. First, let me speak on realism. I think there are two extremes to avoid in life. One, full-on idealism, where, you know, deep down you expect everything should be great. You're surprised when things go bad. The other extreme to avoid is full-on realism, where you think everything will be bad all the time, you're expecting it, and you're surprised when you get a break. No matter how you look at the half-full, half-empty glass, it's still halfway. <laughs> Neither empty nor full. The Christian worldview would say we live in a fallen world, but it's not entirely broken. It's mercies of God everywhere. This requires patience, as we learned on Rivendell through Revelation. In our New Testament reading, Paul just read a moment ago, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of God. He says, a man goes out to sow seed in his field, and of course he puts in good seed, wheat. But an enemy comes in during the night with nefarious motives. He sows among the wheat a whole bunch of weeds. Weed. The good-willed servants wake up and they ask, or they get up and they say, should we go out and pull up all the weeds? To which the owner of the farm, the farmer says, look, if you pull up all the weeds now, you may damage the wheat. So wait, he says, wait until the harvest, and then we'll do the sorting. In verse 31, he tells another parable, a second one about waiting. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest when planted, but the largest when fully grown. So you can't expect the kingdom of God to be immediate. Like if you sit there, where is it? You go, actually, the whole point is it's slow going as people come to Christ and, you know, they start doing God's will on earth rather than their own will. In other words, Jesus, in both parables, Jesus says, wait Check your, check your expectations and wait for God to come, and He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We say it all the time. But that first parable is about people in the end. There are some people in the church who believe Christ, others who don't, and are here to undermine gospel efforts. But the parable is saying, don't get ruled by purest intentions. Idealism can damage the church. And if you want to read something about that, email me, my details are on the back, and I'll send you a PDF of uh, the first chapter of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Life Together. The idealist can destroy the church. All cults start because they're purists. Going to get the only, only the ones who really believe. 
But Jesus says, nah, wait till God comes. He's the judge, not you. Wait till the end, the eschaton, the renewal of all things, the harvest of his redemption. That's what the parable is about. But don't you find it interesting that it's a farming story? I mean, it's a farming story um, about being realistic if you're a farmer, if things go wrong at the hands of another with nefarious motives. You know, a bully comes along, ruining your work, how are you going to handle that, you see? It's inter- so interesting that the upshot is realism in the church, of course. In life, expect the weeds to come up. We have an enemy, but we also have a hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a harvest to come. So it's about being realistic. Genesis 2 says that God made Adam to work in the garden. Adam being the man from the earth, that's what Adam means. Humanity is meant to work in this world, to till the earth, to create order out of chaos, that was two weeks ago, to make the ground productive for flourishing. Work then is not an afterthought. Oh, this seems like a good idea. It's not the bane of the underprivileged, like a slavery, which is the worldview of the ancient Near Eastern cultures in which the Bible was written. It is, according to Genesis, part of the planned, good plans and wonderful purposes of God in creation. But Genesis 3 outlines the account of the fall of humankind. And in the end, it's a narrative intended to make sense of life now. I don't think its intention, its primary intention, is to talk about then. Its primary intention is to say, why, why is there so much stress in the world in which you live? It has explanatory power in our broken world. Why is there such a thing as a toxic culture? Why do people seek to hurt others? And how are they okay with that? Why does lying exist? Why does greed and power ultimately destroy And the answer is because human beings have detached themselves from God. His right, really, to determine what is right from what is wrong. Wisdom resides outside of ourselves, and we've got to go and find it in another, in God. God defines in His being righteousness. It's not internally determined, which I take it as just a classic Australian secular view, you know. Well, you know, there's no God, and therefore there's no external source of right and wrong. So you figure it out, you know, gather the best information you have from, I don't know, maybe family. Um, Maybe we're lucky to live in Australia where, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe we're just lucky to live here and not in a country where they, you know, are more likely to... So where where do you get it from? You see, it doesn't just bubble up from within. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, that's the point of, of chapter 2 verse 15, which is not printed... The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There it is. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, which we find out later is pleasing to the eye and good for food. They all are. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In other words, God says you're free, free to enjoy the world that he's made, except the You do not have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. That right belongs to God. Um, Wisdom belongs in Him. Um, The temptation is to be like God. But true morality is not a human construct. It belongs 
in God. True morality doesn't come because you decide for yourself. And to detach God from this, to assume it for yourself, that's what's wrong with the world. You know, you decide, that's what's wrong with the world. Because in the end we're saying, may my will be done on earth as it currently is in my own mind. Now we're going to explore all of this in two weeks' time when we look a little bit more closely at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 9. Look forward to that in two weeks' time. So I've told you why to be here next week and I've told you why to be the week after. You see what I did there? So much to look forward to. But today I want to go straight to the consequences of the detaching of the fruit from verses 7 to 19 and the answer is that the consequences is that there are now painful disconnects that you feel every day. There is alienation going on, causing so much pain. And if I just gave you 20 seconds to think about what pain you've experienced in the last week, you could all nominate it to me. What I'm about to say is not new it hopefully has some explanatory power for the thing you experienced this week. There are seven disconnects that happen now in God's world. Firstly, there's a theological or a spiritual disconnect with God. We are alienated from Him. Chapter 3, verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid of God, because I was naked, and so I hid. And we've been running from God ever since, not wanting to lose control over my right to determine my life, uh, filled with a sense of shame, which makes you want to control self first, or whatever patch you appear to have, uh, not trusting him, sometimes hating him, often sinning against him. There's a theological disconnect, which leads to, secondly, a psychological disconnect. We're not living the way we're meant to live with God, and that has left a scar on our souls. We feel this disconnect. Some of us don't want to attach it to God, but the disconnect we feel, the disjarring, is something we feel in our souls. And you just got to read the Psalms to know that it's felt everywhere. We're lonely, sometimes even from the person you live with. We're alienated even from self. We have what you might call a heart Sickness. I mean, isn't it interesting that one of the commands has to be do not covet? Why? One of the commands is entirely unregulated and can't be regulated because it's got solely to do with the heart. We're beset with doubt. We believe people who tell us we're, that we're worthless. We believe them. It's not true. We have this sort of sense of self that maybe we're important, but we can't align it to our lives, so we get angry and proud. I mean, narcissism is a thing. I know that I'm above my pay grade, perhaps, when I say that this fallen world and the Christian worldview means that some of us will suffer 
many of us will suffer from mental health issues, and all of us, to some degree, of course, depression, sadness, anxiety, self-doubt, all of them to be relieved in the life of the world to come because Christ rose from the dead. It's something we might have to manage with right expectations in this fallen world, getting the help that we need. We have a theological disconnect or a spiritual one, a psychological disconnect. Thirdly, we have a relational disconnect. We are alienated even from those we love. Genesis 3 is a narrative that's meant to explain life now. Why do we hide from others? Why do we hate people we love? Why do we find relationships and life so hard? The rabbis of old said this, when Adam ate the fruit, the world stood and cheered. See what's being said there? I was in the garden. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the good. Not literally, you get it? The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Joel Warshaw, my life hasn't gone the way I thought it would. I'm in therapy now and I'm trying to find the exact moment that things went wrong. I've narrowed it down to conception. Sin, the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Everyone believes it sort of. And you see the disconnect there in chapter 3, verse 11, Adam blaming the woman. And men since then have been able to own up for their own sins and find ways to pass the blame. But look closely at how the disconnect comes in verse 16. To the woman, God said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that's negative there, looking for some redemption in the life of Jesus Christ, which I think is what Ephesians 5 is about. It's negative there. In other words, you'll want to boss him, but he'll use his power in size, perhaps, to dominate you, and it's not good. And so we have marriages that break down and families that no longer function and kids estranged from their parents. So difficult. Some of you know this very well. It's not, it's not good. And you say to yourself, I I really do live in a fallen world and you feel it deeply. Our relationship with God needs redemption. Our suke, our soul needs redemption. Our relationships need redemption. It's amazing how the person we can hurt the most is the person we love. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Fourth, we have then physical disconnect. We start not to take care of ourselves. And often these two, number three and four, are totally related. That's why they're bullseyes on a target. They relate to each other in some way. All this pain, all this relational pain leads many to be alienated from their bodies. The first time I encountered homelessness in Atlanta, the homeless was in Atlanta, Georgia, Christmas Day, um, the year 2000. And uh, people came up for lunch, uh, so a snack that we were providing on Christmas Day. And, uh, And the first guy came, he said he's a lawyer who had a job three months ago but in America without a safety net, and he particularly had been alienated from his wife, so he couldn't afford two rents, found himself on the streets in Atlanta. Now, I know there's differences between America and Australia, but quite remarkable that that man knew how to hand socks around. Within two months, he'd already understood what homelessness was and felt like. And we can see this, by the way, in our own lives. 
but you can see it on display at the City Care Lunch that we love. There's so much disconnect between God and soul and relationships and that people stop brushing their teeth. You think about that. No more cleaning or self-care, eating poorly, drinking too much, drugs, self-harm. I know there are GPs in the room, and you see this regularly. You're trying to work out how to treat it, you know, and you're thinking, you know, there's, there's body, there's soul, and there's God too is what you're thinking, but you can't, you know, limited chances to talk about that. Our fallenness, in other words, affects our body. <laughs> Childbirth in chapter 3, verse 16 is not the same thing as the list I mentioned above. I'm not trying to say that at all. But pain in childbirth in, gen- in the Genesis worldview is meant to be sort of an indication that we were made for more, that thorns and thistles grow. Fifth, we have a social disconnect. You've got to ask why there's so much social anxiety. And I'm thinking, oh, it's all today, you know, Trump and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I went to a Smithsonian in America in June and I had a whole exhibit displayed to how much social anxiety there was in the 60s where I, where I wasn't alive. I'm like, oh, I thought we were the first generation to have social anxiety. It turns out it's been going on since Adam took the fruit. And I'll tell you why. Because everyone thinks they're right. Boom. That's what detaching the fruit is. I'm right and others are wrong. Instead of seeing right and wrong outside of ourselves and belonging to God whom we pursue. I take it that the the idea that everyone is right in their own way, that everybody chooses his or her own right from wrong, is a liberal fantasy. Everyone being master of their own destiny, but detached from God who made me and has a claim over me and all of humanity is part of the cause of so much social disconnect. I'll tell you why. Because necessary in coming up against God and the gospel is humility. And to the extent that you see a Christian that isn't humble... He's misunderstood the gospel, or she. To which I repent, right here, right now. (laughs) You see, tribalism. By the way, the Centre for Public Christianity Christianity is putting on the Richard Johnson lecture on page 13. You can see that. My friend Tim Dixon, who was a member of this church, who's done extraordinary work, both speech writing for prime ministers in Australia and extraordinary work, is talking about why there's so much tribalism, not just in America, but in England and Australia, why there's divisive politics and what might be said about it, why is there so much anger towards the other side of politics, bullying people to take my view. I take it social media just exacerbates the problem. It's like a magnifying glass on what already existed because it already existed in the human heart. I mean, I've got to stay up tonight because there's someone wrong on the internet. Racism, you see it all at work. It's a wonder, in my mind, how anything gets done in this fallen world of thorns and thistles. Sixth, we have a vocational disconnect. You find your job hard. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, because you ate from the tree of which I commanded you must not eat, curses the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And consequently, we have as Tim Keller says in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which there are 10 copies up the back for $19 if you want to pick up one copy. The part two is what you need there. Part two explores. Well, this is just an introduction. 
so as those, that part in, in his book, um, work becomes fruitless, uh, an idol, um, um, sometimes pointless. Sometimes you find yourself with a boring job, or maybe it's interesting, but the tasks get frustrating, or you have unrealistic work expectations that you have of work, or maybe others have of you. You have overflowing inboxes, profound stress that leads you to make choices that you don't want to make from time to time. You have outcomes that are out of your control. You find yourself with bully employers and lazy employees, or bully employees and lazy employers. Excessive work hours, poor communication, unclear roles and responsibilities, bad workplace safety, noise and overcrowding. Slavery exists in our world in the workplace. Child abuse, elder abuse, sex abuse, Work is hard, <laughs> curses the ground because of you. And I'm getting lots of questions in that space. Almost half the questions I've received in interactions are, what do I do when my work is dull or repetitive or I hate it? One thing to do is to be realistic. Work will be hard from time to time. We must not expect our work to be a piece of cake. It is, as Genesis says, thorns and thistles. And seventh and finally, we have an environmental disconnect we know how to ruin our world. Draining the resources of the earth to fuel our greed, our collective greed and desires. Destroying forests, littering the neighborhood, graffiti, ignoring climate change, junking up the, beer, the city with beer bottles and vomit. I know I heard a fair amount of it last night. And it's all of us, really. Thorns and thistles. I want to talk in just a moment's time about how that diagram works and why I didn't just list the things and put them in a, a, a diagram there. But Ben Elton said on, on UK comedian and writer, um, he said, atheist, he said on, on being human, I believe that humans are more good than bad despite evidence to the contrary. Now, man, for an atheist, that's blind faith. Blaise Pascal said, what a puzzle is a man, what a novelty, a monster, a chaos, a contradiction, a prodigy, judge of all things, an imbecile worm, depository of all of truth, a sewer of error and doubt, the glory and the garbage of the universe, who shall unravel this confusion? Jesus unravels the confusion. said God to the snake, I will put enmity between you and your offspring, you and the woman between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There was one born to strike, to crush the head of Satan and his name is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, shalom, through his blood shed on the cross. He was cursed by dying on a cross so that we might be blessed with forgiveness first Justification, giving us confidence before a holy God, getting that center of the bullseye right now. 
but ultimately so that he might come and redeem this fallen world, all parts of it. There is a harvest, it is yet to come, Matthew chapter 13, where the weeds are removed and when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Take a look at that diagram on page 9 of your orders of service. All of it's important, but when human beings say, we're the only ones who can fix it, here's what happens. Conservatives, is that you? Conservatives tend to focus on the middle, God and family, sometimes to the exclusion of all else, or at least making your way from the centre of the circle out. Liberals, is that you? Tend to focus on the outside circle in environmental and social structures, and sometimes to the exclusion of what's in the centre, excluding God and family. Had a woman come out of 8.30 and said to me tonight, I'm at 7 and 6 and I don't care about the rest as much. To be fair, the Bible does go to the heart first. This order is, in fact, the Christian worldview. The heart first, then relationships, etc., etc. But it's all important. There's a reason your relationship with God is at the centre of His desire to renew all things. So, wait, hold, pray, trust God. Get the big things sorted first. Be right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then do what you can to change the culture and manage your expectations. That's what we're going to be talking about all year. Google, by the way, how to pray when you hate your job. How to pray when you hate your job by Tom Nelson. Paul Mallison here at 1015 sent me that article. It's a set of prayers when your job is X, Y, Z, all hard. Truth, of course, is if there is no God, then Richard Dawkins is right. There is no sin at the bottom of it and no real substantial hope. He said, and I quoted this two weeks ago, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, no God, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is, and we dance to its music but we dance to the tune of the grace of Jesus Christ. UK blogger and minister Joshua Jones wrote this, sin is a hopeful word. You hate it? Wrong. Sin is a hopeful word. If our world is a mess because this is what the evolutionary powers of the universe created, then there is no way in which things should be any different. But if this world is a mess because of sin, then we acknowledge that there is an ideal other and we open up the possibility for saving intervention. Let's pray. Father, we are open now to the possibility of saving intervention, of our relationship with you first. We want forgiveness of sins and we claim justification through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we want our souls to have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we want to be free from fear and full of confidence because you love us and sent Christ to die. And then we want to get our body right and our relationships in order. And we want to see social, vocational, and environmental renewal. Not because we think by doing these things now we'll bring in the kingdom of God 
your kingdom is yet to come and you'll bring it in your time, a new heaven and a new earth, which we look forward to. But we want to be contributors now to your kingdom, acknowledging that we're part of the problem first, but also in doing so, being part of the solution in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. And please continue now with me in prayer.